Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. Why don't you, if you could, grab a Bible and turn with me to uh, Exodus. Exodus again. Only this time, instead of Exodus 14, let's turn to Exodus chapter 15. And we'll start in verse 22 this morning. Exodus 15, starting in verse 22. So we are continuing our new series um, called uh, Resolute, Tenacious Faith in Tumultuous Times. These are tumultuous times. But could God be calling all of us, his people, to a more tenacious faith in the midst of it all? And so to answer this question, we are looking at God's people throughout biblical history. And we will notice that living through tumult is actually nothing new, especially for God's people. If anything, it is the norm. And so what we're doing in this fall season is we're asking God to basically uh, make our faith more resolute in the midst of the times in which we're living in. Last week, we looked at God's people in the Exodus. Uh, We saw that God's path for them was a desert path, and we learned and we processed the reality that often obeying God feels like it's the wrong path. But But we also learned that it's the best path God's path is the best path, even if it's a desert path, because it's where God is. It's the place of God's salvation. This week, we're going to fast forward just a bit to chapter 15, where God's newly rescued people encounter deadly thirst. If last week they encountered opposition from people, this week they encounter opposition from circumstances. And so how do they respond? And what might God have to say to us in this season of thirst? And so I'll read the text and you can follow along. This is God's word. Again, Exodus 15, starting in 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea. And they went into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statue and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Elim, where there were twelve springs of water, and seventy palm springs, and they encamped there by the water. Lord, may the words of my mouth and with the meditation of all of our hearts this morning be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock 
our Redeemer, and yes, as we just read, our Healer. Holy Spirit, come. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's this phenomenon in my life that I like to talk about, and it's called anticipointment. Anticipointment. It's when my anticipation for something is high, but my disappointment of that thing is even higher. And this happens to me probably daily. Uh, most recently, I, I promised pancakes to my two older boys. And let's be honest, I was more excited about these pancakes than they probably were, only to discover that we didn't have the ingredients. See, that is anticipation. And this happens to us every single day in all kinds of ways. We spend hours prepping a meal, um, only to blow it, and so we end up ordering carryout. Anticipation. Or maybe there's a lot of people talking about a Netflix show that they love, and you turn it on, and, uh, and, and you can't even make it through the first episode. Anticipation. You know what? Maybe even you come to church or you come to the live stream expecting and anticipating a powerful word from God, but it's just not the pastor's week uh, this week. Sorry. Um, all of these are small-scale anticipations, but there are large-scale anticipations too, aren't there? What some therapists call nodal events. These are earthquake events in our life, large-scale events in our lives that mark us like a tattoo. Like Jacob, these, these events give us a forever limp. So we're not talking about expecting orange juice in getting milk. No, this is when our marriage hits the rocks. This is when our children break our hearts. This is when we're laid off. This is when we get the diagnosis. You know, this is when we get the phone call. This is large-scale anticipation. We expected life to go this way. Instead, it went that way. And we just can't fully recover. And let's be honest. Whenever there's a crisis in our life, it is also a crisis of faith. Because if God is in control, then our disappointment with life becomes a disappointment with God. And we will call this divine anticipation. Have you been there? I mean, maybe you're there right now. Maybe you are there this very moment. Well, this is the story of our ancient brothers and sisters in chapter 15 of Exodus. They start off with high, high expectation. In chapter 13 of Exodus, the text says that they left Egypt in battle formation. They're so confident. They're so confident of God. And then they see God act decisively on their behalf at the Red Sea. And so they sing with this booming confidence in chapter 15. In fact, everything leading up to the passage that we just read is a song, it's a worship song that Israel is singing with booming confidence. But what's the next thing out of their mouths? Well, look again at verse 22. It's complaint and misery. 23 says, When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter, and therefore it was named Marah, which means bitterness. And the people grumbled against God. That word grumbled, that is divine anticipation. But God has something in store for Israel, doesn't he? I mean, as we heard, um, the bitter waters of Marah do not have the last say. 
this passage doesn't end in Mara. In fact, it ends in the oasis of Elim. And so I believe that, that, that God has something in store, not just for them, but for us as well. See, God is telling all of us to keep walking, to keep walking. Our story isn't over yet. But how do we keep walking? Well, two words I want to think about this morning, and we see it in this text. Grit and grace. God's people keep moving with grit and with grace. Let's talk about grit for a minute. This passage tells us that God's people have a unique calling. Grit. The calling of grit. Uh, We keep walking with God and we keep obeying God, even in, maybe especially in, the midst of disappointment. So first we keep walking with God, no matter the lack or the abundance. They first encounter lack. Notice in verse 22, it says that Moses made Israel set out. In the Hebrew, literally, it's Moses caused Israel to journey. I was preparing this sermon in an outdoor park, and there was actually a a personal trainer uh, with some trainees. And, And so it struck me as I was studying this, Moses made Israel journey. Moses caused them, caused them uh, to journey. I thought of this, this worship trainer making these trainees do their last set. It was agonizing, but the trainer was saying, you have to do this, you have to do this. Come on, let's go. Or the parent making the child uh, do homework. And so they, Moses is making them go into this desert wilderness. They're called, in other words, to keep walking, even when that means, as we see, three days without finding water. And so they're called to walk with God, no matter what, even in lack, but also in abundance. You know, we first see the abundance in verse 25 with the miracle of the tree. Now your translation might say log, but if you follow the footnote, it's actually literally tree. And I like that. We're going to talk a little bit about that in a minute. But this is a miracle. And then in, where, where the, the tree of Elim is, is, is cut down and thrown into the waters of Marah, and the waters of Marah, which was unpotable, undrinkable, become drinkable. And then at the end of this passage, they end up in Elim, where there are apparently 12 streams of water and 70 palm trees. I want you to hang on to those numbers. And they encamp there by the water. Now, is it, isn't it fitting that on this sermon about water and the abundance of water, I'm sitting under a, a pop-up tent with water all over me? Well, the point is, even in abundance, even in abundance, God is called to walk. God is calling us to walk with him. Keep walking. But we also keep obeying. We keep obeying, no matter our circumstances. In verse 5, we read, There the Lord made for them a statue and a rule. And there he tested them saying, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord, your God, and do that, which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes. I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians for I am the Lord, your healer. The Lord calls for obedience, even when, especially when life doesn't make sense. This call to obedience is before the oasis of Elim. It's in, it's in this sort of space of Marah. And I think this call to obedience tells us three things. 
Number one, it tells us this, that God alone is allowed to test us. We're not allowed to test God. So often we approach God, like the Israelites do here, with a quid pro quo faith. God, if you give me this, I will obey you in this area of my life. And so we test God. We put our obedience on hold, really, until he proves his goodness to us. Isn't that what we do? But we learn in this passage that God alone is allowed to test us. God alone. He tested them, it says in verse 25. He tested them. The grumbling of the Israelites was them testing God, which was inappropriate. But us uh, being tested by God is entirely appropriate. He often places us in situations and circumstances that will prove our faith, that will strengthen our faith. Think of it like the refiner's fire. What if we viewed this season of life that we're in as a refining season? What if the church is being shaped into the image of Jesus right now as we speak? And so let's give God our obedience. Let's not put God on the dock, as C.S. Lewis put it. Let's give God our obedience so that he can work on us. You know what? I'll never forget the spiritual advice that I heard someone give a whole room full of college students. He said, are you feeling spiritually dry? To which everybody in the room is like, yeah, basically. And he said, well, try picking one thing from God's good word and obeying it. Obeying it. See, there is a revitalizing, life-giving effect to simple obedience, even costly obedience. Obedience, secondly, is not optional. This passage should remind us that obedience to God is, is not a suggestion. Uh, the words used here mean unchangeable regulation and authoritative directive. These are not suggestions. Obedience is at the center of the story, literally as well. You have them moving to Marah, then you have them in Aline, and right in the middle, if we were mapping this out, you would see a big, huge section about obeying God, about obedience to God. God is reminding them and reminding us that obedience to Him is what makes His people unique. We're a city on a hill. And when we decide to follow Jesus, we tell Jesus, we will follow you, Jesus, wherever you take us. That's obedience. Even when his will doesn't make sense to us, even when his will doesn't make sense to our family or to our neighbors, we simply give Jesus, as Hans Beyer puts it, a blank check, which is freeing and terrifying at the same time. But listen, Jesus is a good king, and obeying him is good. He's the only safe one we can give our obedience to. And then obedience, thirdly, I think we learn from this, obedience is freedom. It's true freedom. Remember, this call to obedience comes right after the Exodus, and the Exodus is all about what? Freedom. And so when God tells Israel to obey him completely in these verses here, To Israel, this is not like a drag. This is not a bummer. This is not a bad thing. This is for them a beautiful thing. It's Israel's privilege. 
and pathway to freedom. See, they didn't think of freedom as a sort of kind of um, nothing space where you're just free free from something. They understood freedom as more than just freedom from. They understood freedom as a freedom to. And because they loved the Lord and because they saw his salvation and his goodness and his presence, they wanted the freedom to obey God. Remember, that was Moses' project from day one. We want free to what? To worship the true God. Theologians and philosophers talk about positive freedom and negative freedom. Positive freedom and negative freedom. Negative freedom is freedom from. Positive freedom is freedom to. So summertime is a, is a freedom from school, right kids? It's a freedom from school. Sobriety is a freedom from addiction. Freedom from. This is a negative freedom and it's a beautiful freedom and it's usually where we stop. But there's also freedom too, a positive freedom. And this is freedom to do what we are made to do. To do what is God's best for ourselves. And listen, for our communities, for our families, for our friends, for our colleagues, for the common good. And this is what God is telling us here. There is blessing. There is deep blessing. He promises us in verse 26. From the healer God. Because obedience to God is how we are designed to live. See, freedom and form are always married. My oldest son, he's learning to play cello for school orchestra. And I was so glad he chose this instrument because secretly I want to play cello. And so from time to time, I'll pick it up off the wall. We have it hanging in place of where my banjo was. And, uh, and I'll pick up the bow and I'm like, this can't be hard. And I'll start playing. I want to sound like Yo-Yo Ma, but the truth is I sound like an injured uh, sea lion, more or less. See, I don't know how the cello works. I don't know anything about the cello. And so I actually don't have any freedom with it. those who know how the cello works and have put themselves in the pathways of freedom, we'll call it, and have practiced in those pathways of freedom, which is how the cello works, they have the most freedom with the cello. And that's how the Christian life works too. Salvation is a freedom from and a freedom to. It's a freedom from bondage, bondage to Satan, bondage to sin. It's a freedom from addiction, addiction to self. It's a freedom from eternal separation from God, hell. But it's also a freedom to, isn't it? It's a freedom to love God and love others. It's a freedom to serve Jesus. It's a freedom to lay down your preferences when everything in you wants to do something else. It's a freedom to serve It's a freedom to obey Jesus. I love how British theologian and pastor Andrew Wilson puts it. He says, There is little point in being free from serving Pharaoh if if we aren't also free to serve Yahweh. And he goes on, So Christians aren't defined by the categories of 1789. Or six, 1968, progressive or conservative, left or right, 
No, we pursue true freedom. Wherever, whether this true freedom, he goes on, is from Egypt or the golden calf. Whether it's from oppression or from immorality. Knowing that if the Son sets us free, we will be free indeed. See, we need to recover the deep privilege that Israel felt and God's people had back then of having God's voice. Having God's voice for them was having God's freedom. Do you see? We too in Christ are not left to ourselves. We have God's word. We have the spirit who will make God's word alive to us and empower us to obey it. True freedom. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. What a privilege. Now, in light of this immense privilege, friends, let's not just be hearers of God's word, but doers of God's word. See, God's people have grit. They walk on and they obey, even in the midst of plenty and lack. That's the place of freedom. But let's not get the impression that grit is all that there is to the Christian faith. See, this passage... And indeed, the entire Bible reminds us and proclaims to us that God's people also have grace from God from beginning to end. God's people are formed by grace. God's people are fueled by grace. And God's people are finished by grace. So yes, God's people have grit. Grit given by God. Grit demanded by God. But we also have grace. First, we're formed by grace. We're formed by it. The entire reason, don't forget, that God's people are walking on the desert path right now as we're reading it is because they have just been saved, not by their effort, but by God's grace. Remember, Moses said, all you have to do is stand, be quiet, and watch what the Lord will do. That is grace. God, from beginning to end, saved Israel by grace. In fact, the entire Ten Commandments in the Old Testament begin with grace. It's called the historical prologue. Before thou shalt and the thou shalt nots, Israel would recite, the Lord your God rescued you out of Egypt. See, what we do is we turn this around. The Ten Commandments themselves say, you are loved and saved and rescued by God. Therefore, look at the freedom of obedience. We flip it around and we say, we need to obey God. We need to obey God in order to get his salvation, in order to get his rescue, in order to get his love. But the exodus and the greater exodus of Jesus tells us that God saves us before we even had a chance to obey him. What's that say? That all of life is grace. We are formed by grace and grace alone. Now, God's grace doesn't just form us, it also fuels us. God's grace is not just the entrance into the Christian life, but God's grace is everything in between. Now, we see this grace on display in our text with the tree of Mara. You know, a tree takes forever to grow. Look behind me, here's a tree. That did not just happen. That took forever to grow. The bigger trees behind me even more. The point is that God in advance planned this tree. And when Israel would encounter these bitter waters of Marah, they cried out and God gave them the grace that they needed in the moment they needed it. 
the Bible scholar who I love, Alec Moyer, he he calls this providential anticipate. I'm going to say that again: anticipatory providence, which is a mouthful, obviously. Basically, he says the remedy has been in preparation long before the need arose, and it's there, ready and waiting. That's grace. God's anticipatory providence. Uh, When I was backpacking into the highlands of Sierra Nevada mountains last summer, with actually with Joe, who was just on the screen a moment ago, I had a huge problem ahead of me. Uh, I just didn't know it yet. See, uh, I was about to walk into a bright white snowscape, which would be fine if we were in Columbus, Ohio, but we were in the high Sierras. I mean, we were high enough, it felt like, to practically touch the sun and not a cloud in the sky. So the sun is blazing. And so what was ahead of me with the snow and the ice and the sun blazing was basically a blinding whiteout. Now, I had glasses, but they were my super cool Ray-Ban Wayfarers that, if you didn't know, do not wrap around your eyes and basically slide down your nose if there's even a trickle of sweat. And so I didn't know it. I thought I had, you know, polarized glasses. I'm good. I look cool. Everything's right. I didn't know it, but I was heading into a disaster. But as we were turning up the corner, walking into the snowland, there were resting right on the edge of the trail these glasses, these sunglasses, these polarized sunglasses that not only were polarized, but complete wraparound glasses. And, uh, and Joe, he's like, you know what backpackers call that? That's trail magic. Well, I call it anticipatory providence. Without those glasses, I would have been blinded by the sun. It would have been a disaster. See, God's grace is not theoretical. I want you to know this. God's grace is not theoretical. It's given to us in the moment, in real time, when we need it, day by day. And finally, God's people finish by grace. We're fueled by grace, we're we're formed by grace, and we're finished by grace. The book of Hebrews says that Jesus is the author and perfecter or finisher of our faith. See, in our passage this morning, we see that Moses interceded for Israel on behalf of Israel. He cried out to the Lord, and what did the Lord do? The Lord heard him and supplied what they needed. In this way, Moses is a shadow, a preview of Jesus who intercedes for us now and always. And just as God prepared a tree in advance for his people at Marah, God prepared a tree on Calvary so that at the perfect time, Jesus would die for his people, supplying what we need in this world most. Yes, see, God does demand obedience. We see it here in this text. But as the church father says, God always supplies what he demands. Jesus died for our disobedience. And Jesus lived for our obedience. We are formed, we are fueled, and we are finished by grace. By grace that was on full display in the finished work of Jesus. His death in our place for all of our disobedience. His life in our place for all of the obedience we were called to live. Yes, even called to live in this passage, but 
failed to do. He lived in that, in that life of righteousness was given to us when we laid hold of Jesus with empty hands of faith. And he was raised for us too, for our justification. He was raised for us so that we have a future hope that everything that's broken in this world, including the ways that we've broken it with our sin, is going to be dealt with forever. We are finished and held on by God's resolute grip till the very end. See, Christians, you have a calling. Keep walking. Walk with the grit that God gives you, but walk with his grace. Christian life is not grit alone. It's grit flowing and empowered from God's grace. If Christian life was only grit, then we would either be the proudest, meanest Christian on our block, or we would be giving up because we don't have what it takes. And yet, because we're saved and rescued by Jesus, that gives us a boldness and that gives us a humility that marks every true believer. We're humble because we know our disobedience. We're bold because we know that we stand in Jesus. That's your unique calling card these days. Grit and grace. Humble and bold. Shattered but secure. In hope, we have a calling as a community. We have a calling as a church. Do you notice in this passage that it does not end in Mara, but it ends in Elim, which is an oasis. And at Elim, Israel encounters 12 springs. Look at verse 27. There were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees. 12 springs, not one, not one spring, not three springs, not even 10 springs, 12. And that is significant because who walked through the waters of the Red Sea but the 12 tribes of Israel? And then it says here that there are 70, not 65, not 70, 78, 70 palms that are being fed by these springs. In Genesis, there are 70 nations in Genesis chapter 10. Is this historical detail an accident? Or could it be just like the tree of Marah? Planted in advance for all of us to see something. God is saying something here. That God's people have always been saved by water, through water, in order to be water for others. As one scholar puts it, we cross the water in order to become a water source. Israel is redeemed by water so that Israel can give water. The 12 feeding the 70. Friends, we are blessed to bless. We are rescued to rescue. We are noticed by God to notice others. We are, lo- we are loved enemies in the gospel so that we can love our enemies. Hope We might be on a desert path right now. I think we are. But we are called to be Elim. We are called to be an oasis. You may think simple obedience, simple grit is meaningless to anyone except yourself. But it is not. Your simple and sometimes costly obedience is a spring to the watching world. And our witness to grace our ownership of how we fall short and our claiming of the grace of Jesus are 
thirst of him is also blessing the world. We can point to the water of life. We have the water of life in Jesus. Let's pray in his name now. Lord, we we ask that you would make our church an oasis church in this desert. Supply for us water as you did the Israelites at Marah so that we can in turn provide and point to you, the true water source. Lord, empower our obedience of you by grace so that we could be a city on a hill, an oasis in this desert. Yes, pointing to your goodness, but pointing also to your forgiveness and your mercy so that we would not be proud or despairing, but that we would be your people walking with grit and with grace. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.